this night. We thank you for an awesome move of God. I pray and everybody agrees with me. Those that are listening live stream, those that are going to be watching this or listening to this video um, or, you know, driving down the road hearing this. However, people are going to come in contact with the sermon. Those that are here, I pray that right now by your Holy Spirit, you would help us to get locked in and focused. By your Holy Spirit, just captivate us that we can we can focus our minds. We'd ask you to anoint our eyes and ears. Give us eyes and ears of the Spirit. And let our, our thoughts just focus in on what you're, you're speaking to us. Give us good fertile soil of hearts and minds. I pray that you'll speak through me the words of life. Let it be as living seeds of truth sown in a good fertile soil. Watered by the Spirit of God will take root, grow, and produce a hundredfold harvest of eternal fruit that remains. Let your word be like a hammer that breaks down strongholds. Let it be as a hammer that breaks even the hardest of hearts. As the Bible says, a broken and contrite heart God will not despise. Lord, let it break that, break that shell sometimes that's there in people's lives. Let the word of the Lord be a sword that cuts away things that need to be removed. And Lord, I pray that it will go forth and speak to me. Let everything be accomplished. Your will to be done tonight. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. We thank you, Lord, for it. Amen. All right, obviously I'm going to be talking about revival history. Well, the Lord spoke to me that a lot of people in our ministry, but even out there, I believe, don't really know what revival really truly is. Um, I think some people just think it's just the presence of God being in a church service or maybe a series of meetings. You know, just let's have a special speaker come in. We'll put up a sign, do a series of meetings for a couple days, call it revival. That's not revival. Those are just good meetings. And, and it's good. There's nothing wrong with that. But when you're talking about a revival, a real sovereign move of God, I believe that by the time I get done with this sermon, you guys are going to have a totally different view about what revival really, truly is, okay? And I want to lay some groundwork and, and just help people to be more hungry than you've ever been to see God move, okay? And then we're going to pray for people tonight. God's going to begin something tonight in the way of impartation. It's going to be very significant for the next couple months, okay? All right, so the beginning of this, my scripture that I want to use is Zechariah 4.10 says, for who has despised the day of small beginnings or small things? God always starts in a small setting. And I'm going to show you this historically. So I'm going to talk about, I'm going to use the Hebridean revival. Because one of the reasons why it's the perfect example. But the other reason is because probably most of you have no idea what it is and never even heard of it. So... I want to use it as opposed to other revivals like Azusa Street, which are much more known. Okay? But the Hebridean Revival. The man that God used to preach the word and see a lot of souls say was a man by the name of Duncan Campbell. I'm going to do a little bit of story reading. That's all right. Y'all just listen. There's some powerful stories in here. But Duncan Campbell was wounded in war. And he laid in the infirmary and he prayed a prayer that Robert, Robert Murray McShane had prayed a century before. He said, God... Make me as holy as a saved sinner can be. Now, there were seven Canadians that were there in the infirmary. They were not saved. And in those days, uh, Duncan Campbell, he spoke Gaelic. He did not speak English. It was interesting that seven Canadians that were there with him ended up getting saved. Even though Duncan Campbell did not speak their language, but they got saved as he worshipped the Lord and quoted Psalms in Gaelic. Why? Because the presence of God invaded. 
I'm going to tell you, God was giving Duncan Campbell a personal revival to prepare him for the Isle of Hebrides. He was giving him a personal revival. And I believe that this is happening to many of you, that God is beginning to give you a personal revival. Even some of you are having encounters with God in the night, as Evan Roberts did, as the glory of God comes upon you. God is preparing you for something down the road. Let me give you what the definition of revival really is. Revival to the church, to the Christian, is a fresh encounter with God. It's a renewed love for the Lord, a burden for souls. But when true revival comes to a church, to a group of people, God begins to burn out all the sin. He begins to convict. He begins to deal with everything that is trying to stand in the way between you and your walk with Him. He's going to deal with it. When true revival comes, the church begins to get on their face and make sure everything's right with God which clears the way for God to come into their life in a greater dimension than they've ever known. All the sin, all the junk that was there begins to be consumed and burned out by the fire of heaven. To the world, it is the convicting power of the Holy Spirit that sweeps in a harvest of souls. So revival to the church is a fresh encounter with God. But to the world, it is the convicting power of the Holy Spirit that sweeps in a harvest of souls. That's why when Jesus spoke of the Holy Spirit, he said, when he comes, he will convict the world of sin. You're going to see a perfect example of this in the Isle of Hebrides. Duncan Campbell spoke about this revival, which I'm about to describe in just a moment. But he said this, when God stepped down, suddenly... Men and women all over the church were gripped with the fear of God. Their prayers began to be, God, are my hands clean? Is my heart pure? As soon as that happened in the barn, I'm going to explain that in a moment, where they were praying for revival. As soon as the glory came, there was a power that was let loose in Barva, which was the city. There was a power that was let loose in Barva that shook the whole village. God seemed to be everywhere. What was that? Revival. Not an evangelist. Not a special effort. There's nothing wrong with those things. Not anything organized on the basis of human endeavor. But it was an awareness of God that gripped the whole community. So much so that work stopped. And people speaking to Mr. Campbell said, Mr. Campbell, something wonderful has happened. Revival has broken out. Will you come to the door and see the crowd that's here? I'm going to explain some of this as we go. The birthing of every major move of God that has ever happened in church history has almost always, almost every single time, been a small group of people that prayed and fasted and sought God with all their heart. Every time. And once they touched heaven, heaven began to invade earth, revival broke out. Then you see the testimonies and the stories. God would raise up powerful men and women of God that would preach with fire and they would would see uh, the harvest come in and see all these healings and miracles and all this. But it began in the prayer group, in the prayer meeting. It's like, for example, the sermon I heard 
um, in one revival, they were talking about how God was about to do something new in Mary. It was conceived in Nazareth. But she gave birth to it in Bethlehem. But see, it was conceived. And the thing is that, that God will conceive a move of God in prayer. Later on, it will manifest in a region or a nation. But it is conceived in prayer. It's, it, it, that's where it begins. So let me give you this example. I, as I go, I'll probably give you a lot of different examples. Just touch on different moves of God. But I'm going to stick with this, the Isle of Hebrides. This is what happened. There was a birthing of a major move of God there. Among, let me just read this. Among many people who were concerned about the state of the church was a small group of seven men from Barvis. The district that, has, that was to become the center of the revival. These men were burdened because they saw all the sin. They saw the backslidden state of the church. They saw that churches were being abandoned. People were not going to church. They were all in bars. They were out living in sin and they were concerned. And so they decided... They were going to gather in a small barn by the road and begin to pray for revival. They were given the revelation that God was a covenant-keeping God who had made a covenant promise. If this is true, they said, we can enter into this covenant. If we keep our part, God will keep his. Has God given us a covenant promise for revival? So immediately the words of Second Chronicles 7.14 came to them. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven, forgive their sin, and heal their land. That same night, they entered into a solemn covenant with God to pray for the community and to humble themselves in prayer until revival came. These were just seven men meeting in a barn. But they were desperate. They prayed for months. They waited on God. Three nights a week, they wrestled and prayed until 4 or 5 a.m. Finally, one night, a young deacon arose from his knees and began to read Psalm 24. Who will ascend the hill of the Lord? Who will stand in the holy place? He that has clean hands and a pure heart. He shall receive the blessing of the Lord. In response to this searching challenge from God, they fell upon their knees in confession and rededication and began to pray even more earnestly. An hour later, three of them were laying prostrate on the floor. They were exhausted. By five o'clock, revival had come. The barn was suddenly filled with the glory of God. And the power that was let loose filled that barn and began to shake the whole community where they lived. Around that time in a little cottage in the village of Barvis, there were two elderly sisters Peggy and Christine Smith, who were also praying. So God had also raised up these two powerful intercessors. These two women, they would hear from God. They would begin to pray for an area. The Spirit of God would begin to move in that area, and they would tell Mr. Campbell, you need to go to such and such area. Mr. Campbell will learn quickly to listen to the two old ladies that knew what they were talking about. They were 84 and 82 years old. They also had been seeking God for revival, and to them came this promise. I will pour water upon him that is thirsty and floods upon dry ground. One night, knowing that the others had gathered together in the barn to pray, the sisters gathered around their little peat fire to spend the night in prayer. Suddenly, Peggy had a vision of the church crowded with young people. And it's interesting that young people always have a lot to do with most revivals. Now, I may talk about that some. So she sent for the minister, Reverend James Murray McKay, 
had told him what God had showed her, asking him to encourage the elders and the deacons to come together for special times of waiting upon God. On the same night when the presence of God visited the barn, the glory swept into that little cottage and God spoke to the two women, revealing to them the name of the man of God that God wanted to use in this visitation. Duncan Campbell, a Presbyterian minister and a great man of prayer. So they send for Mr. Campbell. Revival broke out. The glory of God came and shook that village, and they felt it everywhere. God came down. Okay? So Duncan Campbell comes, and the first meeting was held in an old parish. Duncan Campbell preached out of Matthew 25, the wise virgins. Many people had gathered in great expectancy. God was moving. They felt it. But nothing exceptional happened at the meeting. Some of the congregation moved to a nearby cottage to pray. Duncan Campbell appeared discouraged, and so one of the deacons went to him and said, Don't be discouraged. It's coming. He said, I hear the rumbling of heaven's chariot wheels. At the cottage, about 30 knelt down in prayer and began to travail before the Lord. About 3 a.m., God swept in, and a dozen or so of them were laid out prostrate on the floor, speechless. Something had happened. God had moved into action as He had promised. Revival had come. Men and women were about to find deliverance. As the group left the cottage, they found men and women seeking God. Lights were burning in homes along the road. No one seemed to be thinking about sleep. Three men were found laying on the roadside in a torrent of conviction. Now think about this. Three men were found on the roadside out under the power of God. They were not saved in the torrent of conviction. God was convicting them. They were crying out to God to have mercy on them. The Spirit of God was moving into action and soon the parish of Barva was to be stirred from end to end. It's night number one. Yeah, night number two. The second night, Duncan Campbell preached this time on the foolish virgins. Buses came from the four corners of the island. You've got to understand, before God showed up, this island was spiritually dead. Are you understanding how quickly this changed? A power was let loose in that barn in Barvis that began to shake the whole community. The fear of God gripped the whole area. People felt it. They were drawn. They were compelled. Buses came from the four corners of the island. People crowded into the church. Seven men were being driven to the meeting in a, in a butcher's truck. When suddenly the Spirit of God fell on them in great conviction, they were all saved before they even reached the church. As the preacher preached his message, tremendous conviction swept down. Tears rolled down the faces of the people, and the men and women cried out for mercy from every corner of the church. So deep was their distress that some of their cries could be heard outside in the road. Young men beneath the pulpit cried out, Hell is too good for me. The work of the Holy Spirit. Duncan knew the danger. I want you all to please hear me in this. Duncan had the reason why he was chosen. There was a reason God chose him for this. He knew the danger of allowing human sympathy to interfere with the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. And y'all better hear this, because this, this will upset the Lord. When God, How many knows that God is smarter than you and me? Okay. When God decides to come down and move among men, He knows what He's doing. He doesn't need us interfering and messing the whole thing up. When He comes in, what does He do? He's convicting these people, and people are or on the ground, they're crying, they're weeping over their sin, they're repenting. They're, and, and the Bible talks about godly sorrow leading to repentance. 
But a lot of times people will see something like that and they think, oh, they'll go up to him, oh, you're a good person, don't feel so bad. It's, listen, it, it, don't let that get on you. You're, it, you're hindering what God is doing. Let God do this. Because on the other side of that godly sorrow and on the other side of that repentance is a total freedom. And if you steal that conviction from them, you're stealing their freedom. Because they'll remain defiled by their sin. They'll remain in bondage. Let God burn it out of them. Let Him convict the world of sin. So Duncan Campbell offered no superficial comfort to those in distress. If they were all on the ground bawling their eyes out, hell's too good for us. We're so evil and wicked. Duncan just sat there and said, yeah, just get it under the blood. I mean, con confess your sin before God. Let God get it out of you. Don't stop what God is doing. Even the most hardened cinders and notorious characters of the district have literally been found laying helpless by the roadside, stricken with conviction, as it was in the great Welsh revival of 1904. See, this has happened in many other revivals, in which I'll probably touch on as we go. In the Welsh revival, same type, same type of thing. The conviction power of God was sweeping through that nation so powerfully, people would be down on the ground just weeping under the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. Another remarkable feature was the persistent nature of the Holy Spirit in following men and women until decisions were made. You know why I believe this was there? Because you had two little old ladies in a house interceding. Listen to this. It was known that for some people, <laughs> it was known that some people even tried to leave the island altogether to avoid the searching presence of God. That's how strong it was on this island. Such was the case, listen to this, of a young man who found that like Jonah of old, it was impossible to escape God. One night, after being spoken to about his personal need for salvation, he was gripped by the conviction of the Holy Spirit and he began to tremble. And he said, this is not going to get a hold of me. And so he took off. He said, I'll get away from here and go drink my way out of it. So he went into a bar in order to drink. But to his consternation, he overheard a group of men discussing their own great need and fear of being lost. <laughs> God was even moving in the bars. He trembled even more. This is not a place for a man who wants to shake this off, he growled. So he got angry and he stormed out. I'll go over to the dance hall and I'll dance my way out of this. He hadn't been in that dance hall for very long when a young lady came up to him exclaiming, Oh, where would eternity find us if God should strike us dead tonight? Tremendous conviction swept over him and this 22-year-old young man surrendered himself to Christ. He couldn't get away from the Holy Ghost. The Holy Spirit was searching him out. Duncan Campbell told of a story where the Holy Spirit fell so hard around uh, like a, a prison area, if I remember right. But there were so many people. The Holy Spirit fell so hard, people got saved. And he was telling about how many of those people that were saved that night are now either preaching the gospel or being used of God. But it was the intercession that birthed the move of God and sustained the move of God. So you never really know when you're praying in the Spirit. It wouldn't surprise me at all to hear about those little old ladies travailing in the Spirit. And they were the very reason the Holy Spirit stayed on that young man. There's a man asked this lady named Barbara questions about the revival. Oh yes, she replied, Revi revival is wonderful for some people. But for us, there were a number of us women who weren't in the meetings. Mr. Black was startled to learn these people were not in the meetings. 
They did not have time to be in these marvelous meetings. She said the breath of the Spirit would come and it would be like women in childbirth. They would fill up with the breath of God. They would be in agony. And suddenly, a soul would be born into the kingdom. And there would be relief as the new soul was born. Then the weight would come again. And they would fill up again and again. And others would be born into the kingdom. So it went on again and again. These women carried the burden of prayer through God-birthed salvations of souls. They weren't even in the meetings because they were intercessors. That were praying in the harvest. And the same thing in the Brownsville Revival. A great harvest of souls. And you guys are going to see some things I'm going to show you later on that's going to shock you. But many times Lila would take a group out of the Brownsville Revival. And that they'd be interceding in another location for souls. The results of the intercession. So we see the intercession. They're praying. They're travailing. Listen to this. Sometimes the conviction rested upon sinners for days causing great distress of mind. And we're reading about with Wesley and Finney, same thing. Uh, I'm sorry, Wesley and Whitfield. People were, were smitten with the conviction of God. There was a story about Smith Wigglesworth. He was a bold, bold man of God. I, I bet most of you haven't heard this story. But there was, a, there was these ships, cruise liners, back when he was around, that they would go out to sea and... What it became was this party boat. And the reason why is because once they got out of American soil and got into international waters, any sin would go. Okay, And so they decided they were going to have this party. And they thought for some of the entertainment, they wanted to bring the great Smith Wigglesworth in there and have him sing a song, which he didn't sing. But they just simply just wanted to have somebody to jeer at, make fun of, and mock. So they invite Smith Wigglesworth. Wigglesworth comes in. He agrees to do it. And even some people around him were like, we don't sing. He said, I don't care. He goes on the boat. Listen, and they were there totally with the mindset to just mock and make fun of him. And those that don't know about Smith Wigglesworth, I mean, he had had all kinds of major miracles, signs, and wonders. He gets up there to sing his song. They're all out there just ready to laugh their heads off. The power of God falls. They get so convicted. They're crying, falling in conviction, all this stuff. And Smith, Smith had revival on that boat, man. And they had the whole reason they got on that boat was so they could get out of American soil onto international waters to have anything goes party. But sometimes the conviction would rest on sinners for days, causing great distress of mind. Such was the case with a man so convinced of his godless life and seemingly unable to get peace of mind in spite of repentance, that he rushed down to the seashore, hiding behind the rocks, pre- prepared to commit suicide. A young woman in her home, see, God's not going to leave you like that. A young woman in her home, while kneeling in prayer, had a vision of this man. God showed her exactly where he was, what he was about to do. She rose quickly, called some ministers, they got down there, and led the man to Christ. And Duncan Campbell was so humble, he said, I want to make it perfectly clear that I did not bring revival to the Hebrides. He said, it grieves me beyond words to hear people talk and write about the man who brought revival to the Hebrides. My dear people, he said, I did not do that. Revival was there when I got there. It began in a gracious awareness of God sweeping through the parish of, in Barvis, and I would like to make it perfectly clear what I understand of revival. When I speak of revival, I'm not thinking of high-pressure evangelism. 
I'm not thinking of crusades or special efforts convened and organized by man. This is not in my mind at all. Revival is something altogether different from evangelism on its highest level. Revival is a moving of God in the community and suddenly the community becomes God conscious. Before a word is said by any man representing any special effort. I got a lot of these notes from the book Bright and Shining Revival by Kathy Walters. But I'm going to tell you, Duncan Campbell understood the Holy Spirit would move in and he would begin to convict people. And they were so gripped with the fear of conviction. They were, the Holy Spirit had prepared them so well that whenever Duncan Campbell came in and he could preach the simplest message you could imagine and produce a great harvest of souls. There was even a story where the Spirit of God moved into a city so hard that people all over the place, they were totally lost, but they felt such a, a fear of God, a conviction gripped them, a consciousness of going to hell that they themselves didn't know what to do, so they began to go walking toward the church. Middle of the night. And think about this. Middle of the night, people from all over just began to walk toward the church. There was no planning this. Somebody runs over and gets Duncan Campbell and says, Sir, you must come to the church. God has come down. He goes over there to see a church full of heathen that are gripped with the fear of God, sitting there waiting for Him to tell them how to be saved. Only God can do that. But He can. And I believe that we're going to see this in America. The reason I'm preaching like this is because I believe we're going to see this in America. We've seen a great awakening in the days of the mid-1700s um, with uh, Wesley, Whitfield. We've been studying on that some. And God was moving in power. I believe the Moravians birthed that revival in prayer. But God used them so powerful. And not only that, but you saw at one point, um, after Wesley came to know the Lord for real, they had a small group that prayed and the Holy Spirit came upon them in power. And that small group that prayed and sought God were touched by God. And then they went out and they began to evangelize and preach. And they had to go outside the, the mainstream church of that day because the church didn't want it. And they ended up preaching out in the fields. But literally, all of the colony of America at that time was shaken by the power of God through that first awakening. And I believe today God is preparing things. We've got the church in South Korea that's praying and has been praying. I believe movements like IHOP and, and the call and different moves of prayer are preparing the atmosphere for a great move of God. And what you got to understand, before revival broke out in Wells and Isle of Hebrides and just about everywhere else, it was a horrible place. It wasn't like everybody was just dancing around in the spirit going, when's God's going to show up? It was a place full of heathen. They, and you, you look at America and say, well, it's probably the darkest hour since a long time. But you know what? That's exactly how it was for Wells. That's exactly how it was in Isle of Hebrides. That's what drove people to prayer and desperation for God to show up. And how many knows that dry wood catches fire fast? So God will let things get pretty dry, and then he'll throw fire on them. You know, in Wells, Evan Roberts, was God was preparing him, but when he came back to Moriah Chapel, it was just a group of young people there. And it started with them. As they began to pray and go after God, this small group of Evan Roberts and basically the youth group prayed and God showed up. And the same type of move of God swept through Wells. Azusa Street, you had Frank Bartleman who was seeking God with all of his heart. He was so desperate for a move of God, he would fast and, and his own family was concerned for him. 
This, Frank, are you going out of your mind? You haven't been eating. You haven't been sleeping. You're just praying all the time. But he was desperate, and he knew God had showed him that revival's coming to Azusa Street. Revival's coming to California. And also William Seymour, who had gone to a church. He, he was a powerful man of God. He had gone to this church, and he was going to preach, and they ran him out because they didn't want the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and they didn't want tongues. So he goes to a little uh, church on Bonnie Bray Street. I'm sorry, a little house on Bonnie Bray Street. A dozen people, they begin to pray. William Seymour spent five to seven hours a day in prayer. Frank Bartleman was praying. This little group, he was leading a prayer meeting. And that small group touched heaven, and God came down. And the Great Azusa Street Revival was born. Because a small group of people began to seek God. So let me tell you real quick about the story of Edward Miller. Everybody knows about the incredible revival in Argentina that, you know, the, all of Argentina was shaken by the power of God. Carlos Anacondia was used as an evangelist. Claudia was used in the church. But anyway, Carlos would go into an area and he would preach. Literally the whole city, the whole area would come to know Christ. It was so powerful. But here's the story. How did the Argentine revival get birthed? I don't believe it was just that Edward Miller and his prayer group birthed the Argentine revival, I believe that literally that it was the timing of God, but I believe that these men of God and women of God somehow touched heaven and broke things open for the end time revival as we know it today. And I'm going to show you that. I believe that it was God's timing. We were, we were going to be moving rapidly into the last days, and he had to find a group of people that would seek him with all their heart. They touched heaven and God began something in these meetings that ended up in the Argentine revival and ended up, I believe, affecting us all the way to this day. Dr. Miller told, this is actually Lila Turhune, and I get this from her book, Cross-Pollination, but Dr. Miller said that when he went to Argentina as a, a missionary, that Argentina was tightly closed to the gospel. When he arrived in the 1940s, he wrote in his book, Cry for Me, Argentina, that the obstacles he faced as a missionary in his country were that the heavens were totally brass. These passages, as he writes about them in his book, are chillingly similar to the descriptions of the United States and many other nations around the world today. He said, when I first went to Argentina, the country was prosperous in material things. However, its religion had become so degraded that the priesthood was corrupt to the core. The Argentine people had lost faith in their religion, Few attended church. Few evangelical missionaries had made any impact at all. They were mostly unknown. And when known, they were mocked. Argentina had no God. The Argentine people were totally indifferent to anything that had to do with religion. Their indifference created a religious vacuum that was right for any religion, even communism, to enter. He said, Edward Miller, my first experience as a missionary was no better than anybody else's. Argentina was known in missionary circles as the hardest field in, West, in the Western Hemisphere. In Argentina, I was a failure. I was seriously thinking of leaving and perhaps finding a more fruitful form of employment when I heard in my spirit, cry for me, Argentina. Hearing these words, I realized that there was no one crying to God to come and heal that land. I knew that if Argentina would cry for God, he would come to her. Argentina heard and cried and cried and cried for God to come to her. And our merciful Savior heard the cry of men. Edward Miller did, the most, did what most missionaries do. I want you to hear this because some of you, one day, you may have to do some pioneer work. And this is how it is. 
If you've got some kind of romantic notion that you're just going to walk in and everything's just going to just happen, you've got to pray it through. You, sometimes you've got to plow the driest field you can imagine. Sometimes you're right in the middle of a desert and this, there's a cloud the size of a man's hand that you've got to pray in. But Edward Miller did what most uh, missionaries do. He evangelized. He and other missionary visited villages and towns and set up tents for meetings. They would pass out tracts. They visited every living soul in these places for weeks in and never saw a single person visit their meetings. David Hogan had the same thing for the first couple of years in Mexico. He, he said he didn't see anything. Then the Lord began to deal with Dr. Miller about intimacy with him. The heavens were closed. The missionaries had tried everything that he had, everything he had been trained to do, he tried. At first, he blamed everyone and everything else but himself. But then, as he writes, the long road of excuses were over. My fleeing into God caused me to take inventory myself, and the result was disillusioning. Disillusioning. Bitterly defeated, all defenses overthrown, I was brought by God into a conference of surrender. Dr. Miller said he realized that flesh works were unacceptable, even if they had the stamp of acceptable religion. He said God was offering a new way, a way of power, an operation of the Holy Spirit himself released in the ministry of deliverance. He felt the Lord wanted him to spend at least eight hours a day in prayer and the word just as if it was his job. Despite the criticism and open disapproval, disapproval from people who thought he ought to be doing traditional missionary work, to earn his salary, Miller prayed. Now think about that. He gets there. He does everything that a missionary is supposed to do. He gets up in the morning. He goes out passing out tracts, witnessing all the things he's supposed to be doing. He's seeing no fruit. Nobody's getting saved. Nobody's coming to the meetings. He's frustrated. He says, I want to go work somewhere else. I've got to figure this out. He's frustrated. He seeks God. God tells him, the heavens are brass. You need to pray. I want you to devote your eight hours a day that you'd normally be working. I want you to devote it to prayer. People around him said, man, you're crazy. You should be out doing something, not sitting around. See, to them, in their mind, they were thinking that's a waste of time. It's not a waste of time. Prayer is what brings revival. But Edward Miller had decided he refused to go one step further until he had answered God's challenge to pray. At this point, God dropped a nugget of wisdom into Miller's spirit about fasting. He said, fasting is not the coin of heaven. And Miller thought, I wish the Lord had told me that on the first day because he had been fasting. From then on, he concentrated on seeking God's face instead of his hand, but it wasn't easy. Anyone who has fasted and prayed for extended periods will relate to this. Doubts, questions, fears mark the passing of long hours. <laughs> Where was God? The walls echoed back the barren question. Turmoils wrestled within. Was such a demand on God's impertinence a head loomed in apparent dead in street days of fasting still no answer two months passed and eternity fitted into time not a breeze stirred in the spiritual world not even a tiny cloud the size of a man's hand appeared <laughs> in other words he it was dry and he felt like i'm plowing can you imagine god telling you to plant crops and you're out in the sahara desert and you're plowing desert sands that's what he felt like he was just digging up dry ground where is God? After two months of dry prayer, Dr. Miller gave in to the impulse to set a date or an ultimatum. And he told the Lord after that time he would return to missionary business as usual. The very day 
The set period ended. Dr. Miller prepared to set out with his pocket full of tracks as he promised. And God sent a frustrated missionary and an unsaved teenage son to Miller's door. Hours passed as the missionary poured out his heart and all hope of a day spent in visitation disappeared. As the two visitors prepared to leave, Miller asked the youth some searching questions and the boy's heart suddenly broke as the Spirit of God brought him to repentance. Afterward, the Lord told Dr. Miller something every believer should hear. He said this, You see, son, when I wish to bring them in, they will come in. Now return to prayer until I tell you it's time to leave. See, up until that time, he had think he was even thinking this is a waste of time in prayer because it's dry. Just because prayer is dry does not mean it's not effective. Don't you remember the story of Elijah? As he sat there and he was had his head between his knees and he was crying out to God for that cloud to even come. Metaphorically speaking, it was dry. It had been a famine for a long time. After the first, second, third time, Elijah could have felt this is a waste of my time. But he was persistent and he kept praying and the cloud the size of a man's head came and Elijah knew once that cloud had come, he said, man, it's on. Well, you better take off running because the rain is coming. Now listen, right here, God spoke to him and said, See, son, I can bring them in when I want to. Now get back in prayer. We don't fast and pray simply to move God's hand. We do it because we want to enter into relationship with him. Months later, God spoke again to Dr. Miller. I'll never forget the way he described the moment of when the Holy Spirit finally moved. He got the breakthrough. He said it was like sitting at the bottom of a river of golden honey. When I asked him why he described it as honey instead of water... He said, because it was so sweet, so pure, and so satisfying, the only uh, description that I could come up with was honey. When God spoke to Dr. Miller, it was to give him specific instructions about a prayer meeting he was to establish. So he had this visitation from God where he felt he was sitting in a stream of honey as God poured his spirit in Miller's life. And then God spoke to him, and this is what he was to do. The missionary wasn't too excited about the idea. But God spoke to him and gave him specific instructions. To make things even worse, God told him that he was supposed to get these people together to pray. But to make things even worse, God told him to tell the people that after the prayer meeting, it was to go on um, until, I'm sorry, from 8 p.m. to midnight every night. And if people weren't willing to pray the entire four-hour period, they should just stay home. When Miller walked into the church building to pray, the only people willing to pray with him was a timid young servant girl, a backslidden man and his young wife. So there was only four of them. Dr. Miller told me that every night they prayed it was dead. Nothing happened. Most of us would say, well, we miss God. Let's go eat at the Cracker Bell. Amen. And he felt it was foolish. Every night after prayer, Dr. Miller would ask because he was desperate, he would ask the people one by one, did God reveal anything to you? Did God speak to you anything, any impulse from God? Did anything happen in your life tonight? And he would ask them, should we sing a song? Anybody feel led to do anything? One night, everyone said no except the young wife. And she admitted that she had sensed a strange urge to walk over to the table in the center of the room and hit the table. But she quickly dismissed it, saying that would be foolish. Now I want you to remind you, let me remind you of the story of Elisha. 
Elisha, right before he died, the king came. And he told the king to take an arrow and shoot it out the window. You understand these kings were warriors, and this seemed really stupid. I mean, here I am taking a perfectly good arrow, and I'm opening up a window, and I'm drawing my bow back and just shooting this randomly out the window. And then Elisha gave him some, gave him some arrows and said, I want you to strike the ground. And he struck the ground three times, and it doesn't really say this in the Bible, but I think that he felt stupid doing it. And I think he struck the ground three times, and I looked at Elisha like, come on, man. And, and Elisha got angry and said, this was what the Lord said. He said, if you would have struck the ground six or seven times, you would have completely annihilated your enemies. But because you struck the ground three times, God's only going to give you three victories over them. And that's exactly what happened. Sometimes these prophetic acts, they seem stupid, but they're not. Because once you do them, God shows up. Okay? So around 11 p.m., three days later, Miller finally convinced the young woman to act on her leading. But only after everyone else had stood up and tr- struck the table first. <laughs> so listen, Miller was desperate. He's like, look, you heard something from God? <laughs> to hit the table? Man, you're hitting that table. And she was saying, no, I feel stupid. So Miller said, here's what we're going to do. We're all going to go and hit the table. Okay? And then you'll, you'll go last and you'll hit the table. That way you don't feel stupid. Listen to this. After everyone else struck the table, she hit the table. Miller said this. He was there and he's the first-hand description. He said, immediately, a rushing wind swept into the room from the southeast corner. In seconds, the retiring, timid servant girl was on her feet, worshiping the Lord in great ecstasy. Her hands raised in the air. Her face was transformed, radiating the joy and glory of the Lord as she spoke in an unknown tongue. She was baptized in the Holy Spirit right there. The backslidden, rebellious man who had consistently resisted the call of God over his life fell under the table and and there began to worship the Lord in an unknown tongue as the Spirit gave him utterance. His young wife cried out, I too, Lord, and she too broke forth in a strange tongue. Something happened in the heavenlies that night in early June in 1949 when that young woman finally obeyed God and struck the table. In the months and years after her simple act of obedience, released the presence of God. People began to respond so freely to the gospel. Are you hearing this? They finally got the breakthrough. There's nothing about striking a table, but when God tells you to do it, they got the breakthrough. Now people were responding to the gospel. Dr. Miller set up a Bible institute in City Bell, just a, a city just outside Buenos Aires, to train Argentine workers for the kingdom. In June 1951, I'm about to tell an awesome angel story here. But listen... I believe, you got to understand, this was what, 1949? They were praying and they were seeking God. Something broke open in Argentina in prayer. Years later, and not that many years later, Tommy Hicks came and had that major crusade in um, Argentina. A lot of people have heard of where he came in and the president was healed of a skin disease. And the president said he was so impressed with Tommy, he said, I'll give you whatever you want. Tommy said, well, I want the biggest stadium. I want the radio time. And he gave him all of it. And God began something in Argentina. Years later, God raised up Carlos Anacondia. But it was, I believe, all of that was birthed here. Now, let me, let's follow this story. So God moved so powerfully in Argentina. And then this is just one example. Steve Hill was in Argentina. Steve comes back from Argentina, touched by God so powerfully. And then the Brownsville revival breaks out. And then it goes from the Brownsville Revival to like Smithton and other places. And now the Bay of the Holy Spirit Revival. 
it, you can follow that stream all the way back to Edward Miller in this little prayer meeting back when this girl struck the table, thought she was being stupid. It's not stupid. Something really happened. <clears throat> but it was the persistent prayer that they were not going to give up until God came. It was the persistent intercession in Barnabas. Those seven men said, God, we're going to keep our end of this covenant. We're going to be in this barn and we're going to keep praying day after day until you come. Because you said if, if we will seek your face, humble ourselves and pray and all that, you'll hear from heaven and come. We're going to keep our end of this. We're going to stay in this barn. We're going to keep praying until you come. They were persistent. And a period of time passed, but finally God came. And when he came, it shook that whole island before it was all said and done. But listen to this. After the Holy Spirit broke in around 1949, the power of God was let loose. People started responding. So Edward Miller had to open a Bible school. In June 1951, listen to this. An angel appeared to a Polish student named Alexander, who had come from the deep forest of Argentina to attend Dr. Miller's Bible Institute. The young man who had once been a gang leader and a troublemaker had experienced a miraculous encounter with God. In one of Dr. Miller's meetings um, in a small community in Chaco, he had become a man, a young man of prayer, and he would excuse himself from his fellow students and would go out into the woods late at night and pray. So one night he goes out to pray, and an angel suddenly appears to him. The presence of the Lord was so strong, and Alexander was so frightened that he ran back to the Bible Institute where all the resident students were now sleeping. He began to pound on the door. When someone finally got up and opened the door, Alexander ran inside and the angelic visitor along with him and the overpowering presence of the Lord went right into the building. In moments, all the other young people were wide awake crying out to God in repentance. Repentance. Fear of God, conviction of the Holy Spirit, get things right with God, every hindrance needs to go. Repentance. That's revival. That night, for many nights afterward, the students were afraid to be alone in the presence of God. God began to deal with every single one of them. During this time, Dr. Miller announced that all classes would be suspended to be replaced with a time of prayer. Oh, that we would have men of God like that. God shows up and they said, look, let's shut down everything else. God's moving. Let's just go with God. So a cry that originates from God. Listen to this. Only a few moments after the group of 50 of the Argentine students and missionary teachers began to pray on the morning of June 5th, 1951, the angelic visitor returned to stand beside the young man, Alexander. He seemed to follow Alexander. Then he took him up into an open vision and took him to visit all the nations and the cities that the Lord had marked to touch with his glory before Jesus comes back. I want you to hear me tell this story, guys. This is what I'm trying to tell you. Something was birthed here. And God used an uneducated, uneducated young man from the woods that God said, there's somebody, and he sends an angel to him. Listen to this voice. It's amazing. They didn't know it then, but the angel would come a total of 50 times. And each time would leave a heavenly message with him. They failed to write down the many locations given that day. See, God took Alexander up in a vision. And he was seeing 
the different cities that around the world that God was going to pour out His Spirit before Jesus came. So Alexander is seeing this. Now let me read this story. Alexander's vision and his vocal recitation of the cities and nations continued unbroken for hours. Taking note of all that he said was made even more complicated by the fact that Alexander named these places in their native tongue. That's amazing. Alexander opened his lips and began to speak slowly, deliberately, distinctly, repeating each word twice or more, telling us the name of each city he had visited. City after city. Beginning with the cities in Argentina, then moving out country to country. He was deliberately naming them. Neither student nor traveler could have named such a long list, much less this lad from the forest jungles of Chaco with barely a primary school education. As he moved in the spirit from country to country, he gave names, each city in the language of, of their country, English, German, Slavic, Arabic, languages he didn't know. Dr. Miller specifically remembers hearing Alexander mention Toronto. This was back in, what, 1950, 1951? And also Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Of course, Catherine Coleman had some powerful moves of God there. The same thing happened the next day, but this time Alexander spoke in an unknown tongue and God used a young man named um, Celsio who was even less educated than Alexander to interpret the message in tongues. He was so choked up in his fear and awe over the message that he had to write out every word of the interpretations. Dr. Miller said that he soon realized that God wanted these messages written down so they wouldn't be lost or forgotten. Every day the presence of God was so strong among them that most of the people present could do nothing but weep. I want you to hear this. For ten weeks, the Spirit of God moved on us in horrific conviction of sin and repentance. See, that's revival. People just want, a lot of times, just to bless me, all this stuff. Listen, that comes. This is first. This is what prepared them. That is the beginning of the revival. God is convicting people. Then once they, they're convicted and they repent of their sin and they get things right and every hindrance is removed, then the fullness of the joy of the Holy Spirit is able to function in their life. God is simply just cleaning house. But for ten weeks, that's a long time. They were moved on by the Spirit of God in horrific conviction of sin and repentance. It was something we could not turn on or turn off. Sometimes the students and missionaries would weep so much, literally, that streams of tears would flow across the unpainted brick floor to form puddles. It was nothing to see people sprawled face down on the hard floor, unmoving except for their convulsive weeping for hours or more at a time. I would have had believed it possible for human beings to shed so many tears, Dr. Miller said. The students began to denounce, hear this, all the works of the flesh. They totally rejected the rulership of Satan in their lives and their nation because the power and presence of God made the very grounds around a vortex of spiritual activity. We did not sit around reading or meditating upon the angelic messages during those two months. The presence of God was too real. The work of the Holy Spirit in our own heart too vital. The Bible, um, too important a book to make a prophecy a center. The Lord himself was our center. Prayer became a strong, terrible crying out to God. Among the many visions, messages, and manifestations, the most important were the deep, heart-tearing intercession when our very souls were poured out before the Lord in a cry that originated from God Himself. The angelic visitations and prayers continued for months, but the period of heart-wrenching repentance and weeping began to end after about ten weeks. 
Dr. Miller said in September of 1951, the Lord spoke prophetically to the intercessors of City Bell saying, Weep no more. The lion of the tribe of Judah has roared over Argentina. The ruling powers and principalities have been cast down. You now have an open heaven. Because I have found 50 righteous Argentinians who would renounce the world, the flesh, and the rulership of Satan. You now have an open heaven. Dr. Miller explained that this gave God a judicial right, according to his own laws, to claim Argentina. This may well be linked to God's statement to Abraham concerning Sodom. Argentina was the only nation redeemed in this manner in Dr. Miller's extensive travels and ministry among the nations of the world in the past 50 years. If this principle is true and it only took 50 righteous to claim Argentina from Satan, how many would it take for the United States right now? The burden lifted. Everyone felt as if a great weight had come off their shoulders, Dr. Miller said, after they had received that word from God. None of them wept anymore. It was impossible to weep. He said the spirit of weeping was gone. God's work was complete. Are you seeing how the intercessors birthed the move of God? Why do you think that we keep having these intercessory prayers? And the intercessors are travailing and crying and being persistent. Because I've read these stories. Let me tell you too, in the Bible, remember Paul and Barnabas were in that, uh, what was it, Antioch? And they were in there praying, and they were seeking God, no telling how long. But that prayer meeting there birthed something. And the Holy Spirit spoke to them and said, Set apart Paul and Barnabas for the work to which I've called them. They laid hands on them. There was an impartation. And they sent them out, and revival began to break out and spread through Paul's ministry. And one of the greatest moves of God recorded in Acts chapter 19. But it began in that little prayer meeting. This pattern's in the Bible. <clears throat> Listen to what they wrote about in the Hebridean revival. They said, this is revival. When men in the streets are afraid to open their mouths and utter a godless word, least the judgment of God will fall. When sinners are overawed by the presence of God, Tremble in the street and cry out for mercy. When without, without special meetings, without sensational advertising, the Holy Spirit sweeps across cities and towns in supernatural power and holds men in a grip of terrifying conviction. When every workshop becomes a pulpit, every heart an altar, or every home a sanctuary, and people walk softly before God. This is revival. So I'm hoping to change your view about revival because some people think it's just this feel-good thing. No, it's God coming down it's God saving sinners. It's God cleaning his house. It's Jesus making the whip and driving out the money changers. It's God coming in and putting his house in order. You remember when Jesus came, if you read the story, he made the whip and drove out the money changers. Then you read about him preaching and ministering after that and healings and miracles breaking out. But first, Jesus had to clean house. Then the revival could come. So revival is first off God cleaning house. What would happen if God could find a group of people here tonight that really would get on their face and cry out to God and repent of any sin, would really truly repent of the flesh, repent of any worldliness, that really would renounce the devil and really go after God? Could God do it again? I believe the prophets have spoken that it's coming to America. Why not you? The conviction of the Holy Spirit marked Wesley's ministry, Whitfield's ministry, Finney's ministry. Finney went into, he went out in the woods and prayed and fasted. He came in to rent a building. 
some, and it was like they were sewing. It was some building, and this lady began to, to point, laugh at him for no reason. I guess it, maybe he'd been out in the woods. Maybe he looked funny. But anyway, he comes in, and he's looking at her with this piercing look. She falls under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God fell in that warehouse. That's revival. Remember this when revival comes. Souls are the heartbeat of revival, and prayer is the life's blood of revival. Your heart has to be burdened for souls, and prayer is the life's blood that sustains the revival. All right, let me start moving to a close here. The manifestations of the Holy Spirit. This is where some people get flung off. I know you guys are used to people falling and shaking, crying, laughing, things like that, but I'm telling you, it's going to even get more intense. Because the more intense God's presence is, the more the manifestations of the Holy Spirit. And let me tell you something about the Holy Spirit. There are people out there that seem to be fine with God the Father. They seem to even be fine with God the Son. But they don't like the Holy Spirit. And let me give you a warning about that. The Holy Spirit is God Almighty. He is just as much God as Jesus or the Father. Just as much God. He deserves just as much respect. And when He comes and moves, this is what Jesus said. Jesus out of His own mouth. You don't believe me? Get your phone out and Google it. Jesus said this. All manners of blasphemies will be forgiven. This is what he said. Those that speak evil against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. So Jesus said, you can be forgiven for speaking against the Father, against the Son. But if you speak against the Holy Spirit, you won't be forgiven. And that's what he said. It's in the word Google. Look it up for yourself. He said, speak evil against. So it's a great test when revival comes. Because you have people out there that are God mockers. You have people out there point and jeer. And this is in the Bible. When the Holy Spirit came on the day of Pentecost. They were, I would imagine, overcome, staggering, speaking in tongues. You guys know how it is. And, and what was the first reaction? Somebody laughed and said, they're drunk, look at them. They've been having way too much wine. These guys, what are y'all doing? Look at this. And then, what's the next reaction? Peter gets up and preaches. The same Holy Spirit that had touched them and refreshed them now moved outward like this with the fear of God and conviction. And these people that were mocking and laughing now were gripped with the fear of God and conviction of the Holy Spirit. And the Bible says they were cut to the heart. That's the description. And they went from, ha, look at these ridiculous people. They went from that to, brothers, what, what must we do to be saved? That is revival. But let me warn you, be careful who you're following. Not everybody knows where they're going. G. Campbell Morgan was, was a part of what was going on in Wales. Okay, he saw the Welsh revival. He loved the Welsh revival. But whenever he was asked about the Azusa Street revival, he said it was the last vomit of Satan. R.A. Torrey, great Bible expositor, I mean, a great teacher. But he said that it was Azusa Street was insanity's worthy, worthy of a madhouse. So be careful with who you're listening to. These critics, you know, they can deter people from the move of God. There was a story in the Brownsville Revival. There was a woman. Her husband, and this you may see this story. I don't remember. I'm going to show a lot of things you've never seen. I want you to, these next several weeks, I want you to make every effort to be. I'm going to show you things you've never seen. But there was a woman during the Brownsville Revival that was desperate. She had went there. She had gotten saved. Her husband was a heathen. He was hard as a rock. And she was praying for him. And he called her and thought she was in some cult. She was a weirdo. And, um, I mean, he, he was... You know, taking his drugs and drinking all the stuff that he did, and he was commanding her to come back home. And, and she knew that if she could get him there, 
that God could touch him. So she kept praying for him. She said, if you'll just come, I'll go back with you, but I want you to come. And he finally made a deal with her. He said, okay. He said, I will go to one service. I will sit through it. I won't make fun. I won't say anything. I'm going to sit there and watch. I'm just going to be there. I will sit there because you want me here. I will sit there. After I sit through this whole service, he said, I don't want to hear another peep about it. That's the end of the matter. She said, deal. He comes. He sits beside her. He's rolling his eyes during the whole service looking at his watch. But they had a deal. So he sat through through the whole thing. The altar call came. Steve Hill's calling people to repentance. By the hundreds, people are bawling. Same stuff is here. People are gripped with the fear of God, conviction of the Holy Spirit. Come down. I was there. I saw it over and over. People down there, they're, they're heathen. They don't know how to pray. You're not hearing prayers. You're hearing groaning and, 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 and crying out. You're hearing shrieks. And, and they feel like that they're going to hell and they need a Savior and they're crying out. And so this is happening. The guy is behind that and he's just just like an Indian. I'm just stone cold. And his wife is kind of starting to cry now thinking, man, if he could sit through this unmoved, this is a hopeless case, you know. And, um, and so anyway, as the story goes, and, and I was with Brother Steve in his office. He's telling me the story. Brother Steve said that he, he walked by. They, they were leaving. This guy was packing up. He was leaving. But Steve walked out there, and as he was praying for people, he just went up to the guy and said, hey, man, good to have you. And stuck his hand out, and the guy said, okay, and, you know, went to shake his hand. The second their hands touched, that guy, everybody saw this. He was picked up and thrown about 10 feet backward in the air. 10 feet. That's not exaggerated. He was thrown in the air. He hit a wall, and he slid down and melted. He was there for a long time. And while he was under the power of God, he got saved. He totally got things right with God. I mean, he got up. He was literally got up a changed man. And now he's on fire for God. And his wife and him are a Christian serving the Lord. But let me give you, during the first great awakening, mid-1700s, Jonathan Edwards described the Holy Spirit's activity in the first great awakening as this. See, well, Jonathan Edwards was the guy that preached sinners in the hands of an angry God. If you think I preach it straight and rough, why don't you Google that sermon? Okay, I mean, he, you talking about, anyway, people in that church service, it's recorded in history, they were white knuckling the pew. I mean, their knuckles turning white as they're holding on to the pew in front of them, thinking that literally the, the ground beneath them was going to split open and they were all going to fall into hell. They really felt that convicted. And he just sat there. God had given him the sermon. He wrote it down. He sat there like this and read the sermon. And the, the, the Holy Spirit moved in that place. And those people were gripped with the fear of God. And so you got to understand the work of the Holy Spirit had already begun in the fear of God and the conviction of the Holy Spirit. So now, once that they're made ready, now Edwards and, and people like Wesley and, and Whitfield and others were bringing the gospel. And this is what he said. When God did as it suddenly opened their eyes and let their minds sense the greatness of his grace. So first off, they've been so convicted. But now they're seeing the grace. Now they're seeing the fullness of Christ. They're seeing... Christ's readiness to save them and forgive them, to their joyful surprise, had caused their hearts to leap. So that they have been ready to break forth into laughter. These were the manifestations he saw and wrote about. Tears issuing like a flood, weeping uncontrollably, loud weeping. It was a frequent thing to see a house full of outcries, people yelling out, Fainting, that's falling out under the power in their time, okay? The way they had described it, fainting, 
convulsions. They were shaking under the power. And such the like, both with distress and also with admiration and joy. Many, listen to this, many remaining for perhaps a whole 24 hours motionless. Their senses locked up. But while they were in this trance that he's describing, they were having visions of heaven and glorious and delightful things. God was showing them. So in these meetings, there's these outcries, there's the joy, people are laughing hysterically, people are falling, people are weeping, people are shaking under the power of God. (laughs) That sounds a little bit like some things that we've seen. And not only that, it sounds like some revivals I've been to, doesn't it? John Wesley recognized falling to the ground as a manifestation of God and records many such instances in his ministry. In fact, George Whitfield criticized Wesley for permitting this phenomenon until it started happening in his meetings. Then what's Whitfield going to say? I'm starting to close here. Listen to Second Great Awakening, Charles Finney. While Charles Finney would preach, it said that people said it would feel like waves of electricity would shoot through the air. People would be in a seated position and just fall on the ground in a fetal position, groaning under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And he would have to have ushers carry all these people and literally plop them down in the altar. And then Finney would go through and lead each one of them to Christ. In 1801, the Great Cambridge Revival. So we had the Great Revival First Great Awakening, now the Cambridge Revival. Many of you don't even know about this move of God. Let me read about it, and then we're going to pray here in a moment. The Revival of 1801, Cambridge, was the climatic event of Western Great, uh, Western great Revivals. It was an estimated by the military personnel that some 20,000, 30,000 persons of all ages, representing various cultures and economic levels, traveled on foot and on horseback, many bringing wagons and tents and camping provisions. Because of the numbers of people attending this length of meeting, Cambridge became a metaphor for Great Revival. But there was an atheist, a heathen there. He was sent back in the woods. And during the Great Cambridge Revival, all these people would be there. And the power of God was sweeping through the place. The man that started, they started seeing the revivals, the preacher said that all of a sudden the Spirit of God just came in and he got hit by the power of God and he felt like he was going to stagger and fall. And the meetings just started to explode. And people started coming from everywhere. But this heathen atheist was sitting back in the woods I'm just picturing him back there. He's got some shrubbery in a tree. And he's looking on. And he's there just to spectate and make fun. And this is what he wrote about his little encounter. He said, The noise was like a roar of Niagara. A vast sea of human beings seemed to be agitated as if by some storm. Some of the people were singing. Others were praying. Some were crying out for mercy in the most piteous of accents. While witnessing these scenes... A peculiar, strange sensation, such as I had never felt before, came over me. My heart started beating tumultuously. My knees started trembling. My lip quivered. I felt as though I must fall to the ground, and a strange supernatural power seemed to invade me. At one time, I saw at least 500 people swept down in a moment, as if with a battery of a thousand guns had been opened on them. Friend, he had an encounter with God there. But you're going to see Holy Spirit manifestations. I'm going to get these notes out to people. It's all in here. But falling to the floor, shaking, jerking, groaning, deep bowing, heavy weeping and crying, laughing, dancing, uh, trances, visions. Historically, these great awakenings, these movements have seen the same thing. I remember one time in a Rodney Hart Brown meeting, I wanted to share this. The power of God was sweeping through this place. People come down for prayer. He had had people come down. There was this guy. He walked by me. He was praying for people. They were falling out. He gets to this guy 
and uh, looks at him. So when did you get saved? And the guy said, I don't know the Lord. So Rodney led him to the Lord right there. Then Brother Rodney prays for him. He falls down under the power of God. And Brother Rodney said, what else do you need from the Lord? And the guy said, my legs need to be healed. So Brother Rodney grabbed his legs and prayed for him, moved his legs back and forth, and they were totally healed. This man got saved, hit by the power, and healed right there. I was at a Benny Hinn meeting one time. This was back in the 90s. And Benny had come to Dallas. I've never, I don't know if I've told you guys this story. And as he was preaching, he was preaching for people to be set free from things. And he called everybody down that just wanted him to pray over them. I had come down and he was preaching here. I'd come down over to his right and I was in the, really the corner. And I was just watching, you know. And I was very young in the Lord. And this was an amazing thing for me to experience overall because I was really young in the Lord and I was certainly young in the things of the Holy Spirit. So I was really interested with what was going on. And he had preached on like deliverance and, and people getting free from bondages and from demonic attack and all that. And people came down. And Benny stood up there. I'm telling you, there were several hundred people that were in, in the altar area. In that meeting, people were being healed spontaneously. People were, were, were getting baptized in the Holy Spirit just in their chair. But right now, he's praying for deliverance. And he stood there and he took authority over Satan. Just standing there in the pulpit. He took authority over Satan and over any demon power. And I stood over there and I watched as several people started manifesting demons and started falling and shaking all over that place. And Brother Benny turned and he had a bunch of preachers there. He said, go get them. And so they all descended. Now this is a crazy part of the story. As I'm standing there watching this, the preachers are now casting the demons out. It's awesome. I'm sitting there watching this and I heard... A voice from the enemy. I was young in this. And I heard the enemy say, you will never do that. Now listen to the rest of the story. So I'm standing, I'm probably 19 years old. I'm really awestruck with what's going on. And I'm just standing there like this. You know? And I hear this voice, like a demonic thing, go, you'll never do that. I'm sitting there thinking about now the voice. What in the world? About that time, this blonde man that travels with Benny, I believe his name's David, if I remember the story correctly, Benny saw him, pulled out, uh, pulled over his car, witnessed to him. He got saved and became a part of his ministry. But this guy, David, walked by me. And I'm standing there, just heard this voice. And he walks by me and turns, says, can I pray for you? I said, sure. And uh, he comes up to me, puts his arms, he goes like this. He said, son, he said, the devil is telling you that you can't do something. But God says you can so think about this, and you can too, but think about this. I had just heard that. Do you realize the impression this had on me as somebody that was like 19 years old that had never been around this to, to see the power of God de destroying demons? I mean, they were, and, and watching this mass and then um, having somebody give me such an accurate prophecy on the spot like that. I mean, you could tell he was walking by me and just stopped and turned. Like, hey, can I pray for you? I said, yeah, but little did I know at the time he had actually heard the Lord say, tell this guy something. I had just heard the devil tell me. I remember when I very first started, um, it wasn't River of Life, but whenever God called me to this area, I was doing personally a lot of street evangelism and, and people were getting touched by God and I began to connect with a ministry in Dallas and um, I started meeting at this apartment with a handful of people. I mean, there might be a dozen people or something. We were basically just doing 
I was doing acoustic guitar worship, praying for people. But the power of God was showing up. I want to tell you a story. This is the early days, because really, this is the early days of what we have right now. But none of you were there. But this was a different group of people that had started. But anyway, I was there. We had done the worship, and I was teaching a little bit, and I started praying for people. And um, pray for this one guy. He falls out. He's, he's a baby Christian. He said he felt like he literally hit water when he hit the ground. He said it didn't, the way he described it, it didn't feel like he hit ground. It felt like when you fall backward into a swimming pool, he hit water. He said he felt water flowing over. Then these girls started laughing in the spirit, which was funny. And I turned to this one guy who's standing there walking toward me like this. And just I just turned and slapped his hands and went to turn back. He was thrown in the air over the sofa. Of course, the girls that were already laughing were pointing at him. Ha, 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 laughing. He, he hits the wall, slides down. There was a guy that also had been hit by the power that was on the ground that saw this guy in the air and was trying to get up because he thought he was going to fall on him, you know. And he couldn't get up. This was, seriously, that was kind of the beginning of, of the ministry God had called me to in Dallas in this area. And not only that, but I remember early on, um, things began at my house. This was my Bonnie Bray Street, right, you know. And we began to have a move of God in my home, and, and church was birthed out of the home. And, and I remember that early on we would have prayer and worship. And I remember seeing a cloud come into my home, a little cloud. And I don't think anybody else saw it. But I watched this cloud as it would move over somebody and that person would start crying. And then it would move over to somebody else and they would start crying. And you could see the move of God. And God was birthing something. I believe when God brought Rodney Howard Brown from Africa, God brought revival into America that was ankle deep. I believe Toronto brought it up to knee deep. I believe Brownsville brought it up to waist deep. But there's a coming revival that's over the Head River. And Dr. Cho said that it would... It would begin in Pensacola and spread throughout the whole nation. Let me give you a few more things. Y'all bear with me because we're going to pray in a moment. Listen to what Ruth Ward Heflin said. One night in Jerusalem, I was carried away in the spirit and I saw the last day revival. I saw a large platform. It was the deepest platform I'd ever seen. I stood on very broad platforms, but none so deep. On the platform, there were at least 100 hospital stretchers filled with critically ill people. I knew that they were there because of the miracles that were taking place in the meetings. I saw television cameras and reporters from all the major networks, and I knew they were there recording the great revival. I saw America blaze with God. I knew when the revival had fully been ignited across all of America that Dallas, Texas would be the center of it, the hub. That's what she saw and prophesied before she died. Now bear with me, people. Listen, I want to say a few more things before we pray, but this is important. We've got to lay hold of the prophetic word of the Lord. You've got to believe when God speaks, just like those guys in Barvis, when they got in that barn, they said, we believe God is coming, and they prayed. And not only that, when Duncan Campbell came and preached, and it didn't seem like a lot happened at first, they were telling him, don't worry, Mr. Campbell. God's already showing up. Don't worry about that. God's coming. They had faith. Dr. Cho prophesied, I want to get this on the sermon. He said in the early 90s, the Lord spoke to him to pull out a map, and his finger went to, the, to Pensacola, and God told him, he said, God said that the revival would begin in Pensacola and burn like a matchhead. Then it would move 50 miles west, which it already has today, the Bay Revival. Then it would back up again into the east coast and move up the east coast to the northeast. 
then it would come diagonally across the nation to the southwest. Then it would go up the west coast to the Pacific Northwest. And once it got up there, he said God showed him that all of America would be ablaze, ablaze in the fires of revival. I'm trying to prepare some people for what's coming. I'm trying to tell you that it's coming. It's at a baby stage. I'm trying to get ready. I'm trying to prepare you guys to be ready. I want when the revival is fully ignited, I want to be ground zero. I don't want God to have to pass me or you by. I want to be right in the middle of the move of God. But I want you to know what revival is. It isn't just falling on the ground and shaking and crying. It's not just a feel-good thing. It's not just joy. Revival is a house cleaning. It's God sweeping in a harvest of souls under the fear of God and the conviction of the Holy Spirit. That's why it's so important. Remember this. When revival comes, you've got to make sure that we're not birthing false converts. We've got to preach the pure gospel. Ray Comfort did such an amazing job with his, his uh, book, Hell's Best Kept Secret. Him and, and Kurt did this video, and he talked about what would it be like if you went to a man on an airplane and the stewardess said, Sir, this parachute will make your flight so much better. You're going to enjoy this parachute. As a matter of fact, everything about your flight is going to improve. And so the man says, Okay. And he puts on his, I'll try it. And he puts on the parachute, and he's sitting there in his chair. Pretty soon he's realizing how uncomfortable the parachute is. I can't get comfortable in my seat. We're not talking about first class. He's in coach, right? I can't get comfortable in the seat. This is miserable. People start making fun of him. Look at this guy. He's got a parachute on you. And so he gets mad. Takes his parachute off, throws it at the stewardess. Why'd you give me this? And now, not only has he rejected the parachute because he was misled, but now he's angry at her. And Ray said, that's like the people that give you that feel-good gospel. Why don't you just give Jesus a try? Listen. But he said, what would it be like if the stewardess came to the man and said, Sir, we had an engine blow out on the right side. We're at 30,000 feet. That caused a fuel leak. The leaking fuel is pouring out. We've got about 10 minutes till this next engine is going to run out of fuel. And we're going to begin our rapid descent to the earth. We're going to die. But I have this for you. I will give you a parachute. And if you put this parachute on, when the plane begins to descend, we're about to kick open the door. Everybody's got parachutes. We're going to jump out, and we're going to float safely to the ground while we watch the plane crash and burn. Would you like a parachute, sir? And the man reaches out and grabs the parachute, pulls it under himself, puts it on. He's not going to care if anybody makes fun of him for his little parachute. He's not going to care anymore. Now listen, that is exactly, that's why Jesus said in the parable of the seed and the sower, he said that some people, they don't understand the word. And the devil comes and steals the seed because the gospel is not presented to them in a way they can understand. It's not the real gospel. It's a feel-good gospel. Why don't you just give Jesus a try? He'll make your life so much better. You'll be so much happier. There's so much joy. And all of that is there for true Christians. But, and they're trying to sell Jesus to them. No, no, no. When you go to people, help them understand like the woman with the parachute about the, the plane that's going down. Help them understand, sir, we have sinned. We've broken God's laws. Because of that, we are, in fact, on our way to hell. Then they understand that they need Jesus as a Savior. They need salvation. You've got to bring the gospel to them the biblical way. 
not the American culture way. And right now, the Bible says in the last days, people will fall away. And we've got an epidemic of, of producing false converts and then also having people falling away right and left. Why are people abandoning the faith? Well, first off, they may not have ever really known the Lord because they weren't presented the true gospel. But even those that come to know the Lord, the church, we've got to help them once they come into Christ to get water baptized. We've got to get them discipled. We've got to get them delivered of all their junk. Because how many knows you bring some junk into Christianity? And that stuff can torment and hold people back. We need to get that out, off, away from them. Okay? And then they need to be baptized in the Holy Ghost and fire and set on fire. Where they burn for the Lord. And if the church will do that, then there are going to be a lot more people staying in the faith. But let me give you a few things. Number one, allow people to have true encounters with God and don't get in the way of what God's doing. If God's got a bunch of people on the ground rolling around talking about how hell is too good for them, crying out to God for mercy and sin and everything else, Lord, forgive me, I've, you know, let, let God alone. Leave Him alone. Let Him do what He's doing. Because they're going to come up out of that, that um, pile of conviction. They're going to come up free. Number two, in revival, let people, yes, let people have a move of God, but also make room for healings, miracles, signs, and wonders, creative miracles, the dead raised. Make room for healing. Make room for healing. Pray for the sick. Number three, make room for deliverance. Believe God to destroy every work of the devil and set people free. Number four, lead people into the baptism in the Holy Spirit, not just impartation alone. Impartation is wonderful, but specifically people need to be baptized in the Holy Spirit and they need to have a prayer language. Or the next one is this. Don't ignore the sacraments. Make sure there's water, ba- water baptism, anointing with oil, and, the, and communion is taken regularly. Number six, Strong discipleship needs to be in place. You know why wells, they say, faltered and failed? Because they didn't have discipleship in place for all the people that were getting saved. And the last one, number seven, guard the move of God like a shepherd with a rod of iron. You have to guard the move of God. Evan Roberts ruthlessly kept anybody else from getting the glory but God. He guarded the move of God. Nobody else was going to steal the glory that God deserved. Nobody else was going to come in and try to deter the focus off of Jesus onto themselves. And William Seymour ruthlessly guarded the move of God to keep men's hands off of it and keep man's control off of it. To the degree that he had to padlock out another minister. But he was determined, nobody is going to control this move of God. God's going to do what he wants to do. And everybody else is keeping their hands off of it. And he ruthlessly guarded that move of God. There's some things I want to close with. I want to get all this together on this sermon. But we've got to learn to bless situations, guys. There's going to be things that come up. I'm going to tell you real quick. there There was a job I had where there was a particular woman. For whatever reason, gave me the devil. Didn't like me try to cause problems. I remember God spoke to me about praying for her and blessing her. And so I did. I prayed for her. I spoke a blessing. You know what? After a long time of being frustrated, God turned, after I blessed that woman, turned that whole thing around. 
things were fine. We've got to learn how to turn things biblically. There was a man that was on Sidroth talking about him and a really good friend of his that was a pastor. Both of them went through pure hell in their churches at the same time. They were going through betrayals. They were going through horrible. And his pastor friend really took it to heart and was, had a broken heart, was really wounded. He was also hurting. But he, God spoke to him to make sure that you forgive, that you pray for the people, and you bless the people. Do what the Bible says. So the man told his friend to do it, but his friend was so broken. And, but anyway, he began to, Lord, I forgive them. He began to pray for them. He began to speak blessings over them. Did you know that his friend ended up, this pastor, this man of God, after all the hell he went through in that church, he ended up in the hospital and the doctors could not find anything actually wrong with him. But he died anyway. And the doctor concluded and told the wife, the only thing that I can figure is he died from a broken heart. Because there's actually nothing wrong with him. He was so wounded in church. There's a big surprise. And then also, but this other pastor survived it. He was going through just as much pain. But he forgave the people and he prayed for them and he blessed them. And somehow through that, there was a grace on him to survive it. And God turned the situation. If you'll learn to pray and bless, we've got to bless, it will turn things. I feel that that is what some, some people need to hear for the future because there's going to be things that come up. When things come up, if you're going to grumble and complain about it, you're just going to make it worse. When things come up, if you're going to get bitter, you're just going to die spiritually. When things come up, you better learn to forgive and pray for people and bless them and you'll walk right through that thing victoriously. There was a vision Rick Joyner had that there was these... Um, all these people that were under the influence of demonic spirits and there was demons around them and they were just spitting at him and jeering and cussing him and, and all this stuff. And these two um, seasoned warriors in the Lord were walking together talking. And they saw all around them these demonic spirits hissing at him and there were people that were under the influence of demons that were that were like, you know, lashing out at him, all this stuff. And they just were talking and laughing like nothing was really going on and just put up their shields and just walked right through it and kept going. We've got to learn how to do that. Or the next thing is this. God is preparing a bride. In the revival that's coming, God, you remember the story of Esther. She was in, she was being soaked in the anointing oil to be prepared for the king. God is wanting to soak and marinate, saturate, fill his people with oil to prepare them for Christ's coming. It's going to take a mighty move of God to break things open. It's going to take a mighty move of God to break things open in these last days. Why do you think God's pouring out His Spirit? Yes, He wants to bless us and help us as Christians, no doubt. But that's also going to be the only way that harvest is coming in. You're not going to be able to win them in the flesh or with intellect. There's got to be a breakthrough anointing that can unlock the harvest. Like on the day of Pentecost. A few more quick things. The Greek word for bind and loose. The Greek word for loose has to do with the translation is destroy. We have the keys to the kingdom to bind and loose. We have the keys to bind up the demonic and destroy their works, to break it off people. That's why a lot of times you'll hear me say that I break this off. I'm, I destroy this off. I'm, I'm loosing it off people. All the time when I pray it, somebody will feel something snap. We have that authority. I want to tell you in the coming revival to lift up your voice and use your authority to bind the enemy and to break off his works off people. No matter what it is, sickness or, or whatever type of bondage, stronghold, curse, whatever, we have authority to break it off. 
And here's the last thing I want to talk about. Destiny hindrances. Listen, there's things that try to hold people back from their destiny. You guys make sure that you don't allow pride, bitterness, rebellion, lust to creep in. Pride will disqualify you. Bitterness will stop you. Rebellion will ruin people. God can't use a rebellious person. Also lust. It'll hold people back and beset them. And last is the deceitfulness of sin. How is it that some people end up in sin and it's like they were deceived into it or seduced into it because they knew it's wrong, but yet somehow they ended up in it and now they're justifying it. How does that happen? It's as though some kind of a spell on their mind. They're deceived, the deceitfulness of sin. Don't allow the devil to deceive you into thinking that you can justify any sin no matter how small it is, including your little white lie or whatever it is you think is justifiable. It's not. Don't do that. It's the deceitfulness of sin. But let me tell you this, and this is what I want to pray for you guys here in a moment. I'm going to have you stand. Is about the great enemy of revival is Leviathan. I understand, yes, Jezebel, big time. Yes, a religious spirit, no doubt. But Leviathan is a major contender against revival. Leviathan comes against moves of God. It comes against where the glory of God is manifested. It comes against um, preachers that carry that. Some of you guys, you want to carry the revival. You want to carry this torch. It's great. Be ready because at some point you're going to face some things. But Leviathan tries to come in. And when Leviathan comes, he tries to bring destruction, death, confusion. What Leviathan is, it functions through pride. But Leviathan, a lot of times, 99% of the time, church splitters are under the influence of Leviathan. Leviathan will take what somebody says out of their mouth. You know, I could say something. It'll go through the air to your ear, but by the time it hits your ear, it's all twisted and confused, and you hear something completely different. That's Leviathan. Leviathan sits back and, and puts thoughts in people's minds against your brother or sister in Christ or against a preacher, critical, judgmental, negative thoughts. You've got to get used to the fact that, especially if you're calling to the ministry, that you're going to have to deal with criticism from people. Okay, it's demonic, but that's just the way it is. Every preacher has had to deal with it. All these great leaders that you read about, there'd always be somebody out there who didn't like them and sat back and real negative and criticized them. Let me tell you, I forgive those people. I really don't let it bother me because when I die, they're not going to be there. It's going to be me and the king, and he's going to judge my life, not them. So anyway, Leviathan. Leviathan will try to creep in through pride and through insecurities in people. See, people have been wounded. And when the wound is there, a lot of times there's insecurities, there's, there's anger, there's jealousy, there's fears. There's different things that are created by that wound. Leviathan tries to come in through that wound. When Leviathan comes... A lot of times lust is rooted in pride because it takes a lot of pride to see somebody as an object for your lust. See what I'm saying? It's downplaying them. Pride is all over judging people, criticizing people, fault-finding people, accusing people, and debate. Pride causes people to look down on others. You look down on somebody because maybe they're less financially well-off or they're 
um, they're less intelligent or whatever. You look down on them. But remember that God chose that Alexander out in the woods as an educated man. God always does that. He'll always pick the person that nobody else will pick. Seriously, read up on it. He always does. Pride causes someone to be easily offended and overly sensitive. And they'll harbor it for years. They're easily offended, get mad about nothing. They're way overly sensitive. And then they'll harbor it for years. That's that's pride. Pride causes someone to have a very hard time forgiving others and letting go. Also, control. You know why a lot of times people won't forgive? Because they don't want to let go of that little bit of control they have. And pride leads to rebellion. So you want to go ahead and defeat one of the greatest enemies of revival? Then let God the Holy Ghost come on you and convict you for every trace of pride, every every area of your life that, that needs to come under the blood, and you get down in your face and let God get all that pride out of you. Everything about um, the insecurities that are there, the focus on self, looking down on others, all that junk, just let the Lord get all that out of you. And pretty soon, Leviathan doesn't have any area to come into and through. I'm telling you, that's one of the greatest enemies in revival, and I'm warning you that don't let the Leviathan creep in. A lot of times, somebody will get really hurt and wounded, and then, because they're so broken and hurt, Leviathan comes in now, and now they've got a great offense. Now they're getting into pride, and they're really judging and criticizing those that have hurt them, and in their mind downplaying them, lifting themselves up with pride because it makes them kind of feel good about themselves and feel good about what's going on. And pride is commanded. Now, because of that wound, there's creating a stronghold of pride. Where pride is, and Leviathan starts being at work a lot of times, Leviathan will cause there to be stubbornness. That you pray about something, you feel like you can't get a break. A lot of times that's Leviathan. It could be financial, it could be health, it could be a lot of things. But Leviathan will try to set up a stronghold where it's hard to break through into freedom. The only way to true victory over Leviathan is not necessarily rebuking, that's part of it, but it's really more of humbling yourself and getting everything right with God. Because once everything is really cleansed out of you, is how many of you guys know that the Lord sees a lot of things about you that you don't see? That's why it's so important to be humble and submit to the Holy Spirit and say, Holy Spirit, you see everything. You see things I don't see. Just get it all out. Clean me. Show me. And God will do it. Those are the type of people that will be used powerfully in revival. What did I open with? Duncan Campbell. He said, Lord, make me as holy as a saved sinner can be. And God used him powerfully in revival. So what I want to do is I want to just lead you in a little prayer. But this is not something that's going to be conquered in um, just a one little prayer situation. Let God deal with you. Ask him, Holy Spirit, show me every area where there's any type of pride or any, any issues in me that need to be cleaned out. So that whenever revival is fully come, I can be used in the fullness of the way you want to use me. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to lead you guys in a prayer and I'm going to pray for everybody. And God's going to touch you very powerfully, very significant impartation tonight. And I want you just to spend time under that anointing tonight, not have to rush out.
So everybody just pray this with me. Jesus, I thank you. I'm asking you, by your Holy Spirit, to begin to systematically show me everything that needs to come out of my life. Make me as holy as a safe sinner can be. Let your Holy Spirit search every area. Change me. Cleanse me. Free me so that I can live pure and be what you want me to be. Heal every wound so the enemy cannot manipulate my life. Forgive me for any pride. I repent. In Jesus' name. Amen. Mosaic, let's shut down recordings and put on some worship. Father, I thank you, Lord, right now, just beginning to move in every life in an awesome way. Lord, we want...